All right, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 8 to 21, the rest of this chapter. And the title of the sermon this morning is, This is What You Want. Because I think one of the things that's going on in chapter 4, which is the conclusion of Paul's argument that started all the way back in chapter 1, I think part of what he's doing is he's pointing them to the answer to a question. A question that sounds something like, what are you looking for? What exactly are you looking for? Given all of the choices that we have, especially with regard to leaders, what is it exactly that you're looking for? What categories are the most important? Because what sits at the, at the core of the problem in Corinth, as we've discovered over the last couple months, the, the thing that's grown up, let me show you this picture, see if it resonates with you. Out of, out of the grass of this picture, Uh, divisions certainly have grown to the top, right? That's the problem. There are divisions, factions in this church, which is utterly unthinkable in light of the gospel, in light of the, the unifying cross of Jesus Christ. But those divisions have come specifically from leaders, this argument about leaders, this attachment to leaders and their worldly perspective of what is valuable in a leader. And that is certainly undergirded by judgments. And that, that, that perspective, the conclusion that they've drawn, that, that makes an impressive leader, all springs from a worldly and proud perspective or judgment of these leaders. And all three of these, this, this judgment of leaders that leads to division, they all come together in chapter 4. You probably remember Alex's sermon about judging a couple of weeks ago. And Do you remember how that chapter started Paul finally gives the answer, the right judgment about leaders in particular, apostles then and leaders today. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. It says, this is how one should regard us. This is the answer. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, the very things of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And yet the Corinthians, as we know, have gotten it all wrong. They're misguided, wrong-headed, and mistaken judgment has led to their unbiblical assessment of leaders, and that led to their pride and the factions that they've formed, essentially all because they have displaced Christ from the center and placed something else there. And And guys, we're not immune to this. We can't just look at the Corinthians and and the, the case study that they are. This lives in us. I want to say something to us all this morning that was true of the Corinthians, and it's true of us. We are, number one, we are high hardwired to evaluate. Full stop. This is this is how we are. This is what we're like. We live our lives as constant evaluators. But then to the point, we too often evaluate leaders completely wrong. We tend to to judge leaders, to pick leaders, to assess leaders completely wrong, often based on categories that are completely contradictory from what God's word actually tells us to look for. We get it upside down. We, we get inside out on this. 
And then the, the things that are less important to God regarding leaders become the most important thing to us. And the things that are most important to God not only become less important, but they, they often get scorned. They become turnoffs. And I say hardwired because judging is what we do. Evaluating is what we do. It's how God has made us, including me. I mean, just think about last week. If you were with us last week, we had a guest speaker here, right? We had Dave Owens, who is from the Harbor Network. And as much as you and I wanted to listen and receive, you and I were evaluating him, right? Let's just be honest. We were checking him out. Who is this guy? What is this guy like? Do I like this guy? Does he talk too fast or does he talk too slow? I mean, that was, that was funny. He mentioned that thing early on about the other pulpit, right? The short pulpit. That was kind of, that was clever. And I know, that he, I know that he admitted and he said it, but when is he going to get to the scriptures? Right? But then there are some of you, and if this was you, you're not alone. You kept racking your brain thinking, who does this guy remind me of? Let's put this up. Was it, was it Mason Crosby of the, the Green Bay Packers? Chris Pine, maybe? Or the old school Jean-Claude Van Damme, right? You get 20 minutes into the sermon, you're like, Chris Pine, that's what it is. Someone says yes, and it's, we think the Holy Spirit has fallen on you. No, you just Googled and found who he looks like. Look, you're not alone. We all do this. This is how we're wired to be. The point is, according to God and his word, it's obviously really crucial to understand what the right criteria are in which to judge somebody. Because I guarantee you, the calling on, on Dave Owen's life and what God has done in him and the, the knowledge that he has of scripture and the leadership gift that God has given him that all lies under the surface that we don't get to see in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, those are much more significant about him to God than it was a pretty sweet outfit he had, honestly, right? Cool boots. That matters very little, doesn't it? So what are you looking for? What are we looking for? What do we want? And I think what Paul gets to here is this statement. For the sake of Christ, faithful leaders will stand firm, willing to correct and appeal and even suffer, all while insisting on the reality and centrality of the power of God found in the cross of Christ. I know that that's a mouthful. But if it's left up to stewards, servants, to be found faithful, then for the sake of Jesus Christ, who calls us, faithful leaders will stand firm, unbudging, willing to correct and appeal and even suffer, all while insisting on the reality and centrality of the power of God found in the cross of Christ. Let's see how this unfolds. First, with the reality, number one, that faithful leaders will at times be compared or judged unfavorably to those who lead. In other words, faithful leaders will at times be looked down upon. Right? This is what it says in, in verse 8, our opening verse this morning. Let's read this and we'll pray and we'll ask God to, to lead us. Paul says, and God's word says, already 
you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Let's pray. Let's pause. Father, we ask that, that you would open our eyes to see that, that, that this, this story of this church in the first century has been preserved for us as a part of your word that is, is powerful to, to shape us. Lord, it's been breathed out by you is useful for teaching us and reproving us even, training us in all righteousness. So Lord, do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've become kings. You've already started your reign. It's, it's actually really surprising here because Paul is actually using sarcasm here. And and a kind of biting irony, it seems, as he draws attention to their overrealized eschatology, which is that position that takes the perfection and reign that is still yet to come in Christ and imports it into our present reality. Now, certainly we all know and believe that the new creation has already begun in Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension, but it has not yet found its fulfillment. And therefore, you can make mistakes on both sides. Some can deny that the power of God has broken into this present age, and they forget that real transforming power and freedom and healing are for us today. But then others on the other side deny any kind of suffering and claim that we are healed and whole now. That God doesn't mean for any sickness or suffering or struggle. And that's wrong. It's extra. It's not what the Bible says. And the Corinthians seem to be in that second category, the overrealized eschatology. Paul says, you think you already have it all. You have already become rich. You are already kings. You are already reigning. They thought that they had arrived. And Paul says, I wish. I wish because that's not the case for us. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Do you see how unfavorably Paul was viewed in comparison to their arrogant perception of themselves? They looked down on Paul. The, I mean, is there a more revered servant of Christ in the church age? Then the Apostle Paul, how do you get to a spot where as a church you want to fire the Apostle Paul, right? Paul had laid down his life for their sake, and he was the one who was truly wise. They were actually fools. But he was wise because he embraced the way of Christ. And what is the way of Christ? In comparison to the impressive orators and leaders 
the powerful speakers who move you with their rhetoric? What was, what was the way of Christ in comparison to that? Well, you know Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And brothers and sisters, this is what you want. This is what you're looking for. A leader who follows a despised and rejected, crucified Savior to the low places. The apostles were those who lived at the end of the line and that old Roman triumphal procession is what he's referencing here. The end of the line. Sent to the arena to die with the conquered and the slaves. That's where the apostles lived. To be thrown to the lions in front of the whole watching world of men and angels. All for the sake of Christ. It's true that, that faithful leaders will often be looked down upon, be considered less than, which then leads to the second point that that we see that faithful leaders will therefore at times suffer in the work, and sometimes severely. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless And we labor working with our own hands. And here it does seem that that Paul seems to be killing two birds with one stone. First, this list is just embarrassing. It's embarrassing in comparison to uh, worldly respectability and impressiveness. What comes to your mind when you hear the words hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, homeless, working with your hands? Certainly not impressive. And by the way, working with our own hands is a burn. Paul's saying we work with our own hands. Remember that the professional orators and the speech givers despised manual labor. The the whole point of getting good at speaking was to not work with your hands. As a matter of fact, that was so beyond them. To work with your hands. Manual labor. So this list is embarrassing but it's also filled with the reality of the suffering that we know that Paul endured look this is this is the opposite of living your best life now Paul followed a crucified Messiah who told us to pick up our cross daily and follow him in the way of the cross willing to suffer and again this is what you want This is what they should have been looking for in him, in the leaders that they boasted in. Those who are willing to endure suffering and to persevere through suffering for the sake of Jesus. Look, I can tell you that being a pastor is an incredible honor and it's 
a high calling. It's a privilege. And I feel like I serve in the, the best church in the world. And I know that I live in a time of abundance and conveniences in our country. And yet I'll tell you, pastoring is hard. It just is at times. And it can take a tremendous toll. And yet we learn here that faithful leaders will always suffer in some way. Especially if you are seeking to be a faithful steward of the things of God. Unbudging in regard to God's word and the things of God entrusted to us. It's up to a steward the things of God to be found faithful. And when you are, well, you just might suffer. But it's not just a call to, to suffer. Look at number three. Faithful leaders will suffer the way Jesus told us to. He says in verse 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is hardly imaginable. He's talking about the apostles who are revered for the lives that they lived and the, the scripture that the Holy Spirit moved them to write and the, the martyr deaths that they died. The scum of the earth. Trash. They were considered trash. And this word reviled and then persecuted and, and slandered. I know there's a sense that that was so unique to the original apostles. Then he's speaking of his own experience, but this is preserved and recorded in God's word. Referencing the possibility of what happens to leaders. He says, when reviled, what, what, what else can we do except bless? When we are persecuted, what else can we do but endure when we're slandered? We, we use kind words, we entreat. What else can we do when Jesus Christ, our Savior, told us on the mount that one day, during that sermon that one day, that this is what we all must do? To bless those who curse you. You've heard it said, love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. And look, this is, this is real. I can tell you again, it's, it's really hard to sit across from those who were once friends, who now revile you. Not just disagreement, but, but revile is, is that deep emotional anger and accusation for whatever reason. And, and sometimes, by the way, uh, it seems deserved because of mistakes that I've made and re regrets that I have, but sometimes it's not. And you just have to sit there and take it. And of course, for me, I'm human, and, and I leave tremendously sad, tremendously discouraged in, in many ways, tremendously hurt, but at the same time, simultaneously praying 
that God would, would heal and restore, whether it's in me or in them. And I know that all of our pastors have experienced this. We're called to, to suffer, yeah, but suffer in the way that Jesus calls us to. Jesus told us the way of the kingdom. And so, so Paul exuded the way of Christ in his ministry. He suffered tremendously. There, there are numerous lists. This is the first recorded list of his trials and his sufferings. There are longer lists in 2 Corinthians, for example. But again, this is, is what you're looking for. And by the way, there, there's going to be a time where if you're going to be faithful to Christ, whether you're a Christian leader or just a Christian, period, you're going to be reviled. There are going to be people in your life because of your stand for Christ that are going to consider you trash. That guy's trash. That lady's trash. Because of your desire to stand firm for Christ. It's not just that that's going to happen. It's that we all have an obligation in that moment to suffer the way Jesus told us to. Which is only possible, like the song we sang, through, through the power of Christ. Not I, but through Christ in me. Paul was able to respond in those ways, with what matters to God most in those moments. Paul was humble and not entitled. He was reviled yet blessed because it's not all about him. And he persevered and entreated all for Jesus' sake instead of his own. Now certainly, he called himself the worst of sinners, and James says that we all stumble in many ways. And sometimes we suffer for self-inflicted wounds. But when suffering for Christ's sake, faithful leaders will suffer like Christ called us to. And then number four, we see that a faithful leader will at times appeal to their authority and example. And this is verse 14 to 17. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Obviously, his tone has been harsh and hard and he recognizes his sarcasm and the irony to try to kind of splash cold water on their face. But he does not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see, Paul does change his tone. He now addresses them like a father who deeply, deeply loves his children. And he appeals to his authority as a father is the one who preached the, the true gospel to them through which, by the power of God, they were born again. It's in that sense that he is like a father to them. 
They experienced the new birth through the gospel he preached. So he says, look, you, you have many babysitters, thousands of babysitters in your life, but you really only have one father. And a, a good father not only exudes love, but also carries authority. And the only authority that Paul had and that Christian leaders have is connected to the Bible, to God's word. Look, a pastor without a Bible is a pastor with no authority. But a team of pastors who appeal to God's word and the authority of God's word has been delegated authority by God and trusted to lead and to teach and even discipline and remove. There's a kind of formal authority that certainly is only connected to the things entrusted by God for them and their calling by Christ himself and and for us, found in God's word. But there's also a kind of authority that comes from his example. You know, you sometimes hear a, a father say, do, do what I say and not what I do. You know that phrase? Do as I say and not as I do. But we know that this renders his authority as, as very hollow. But Paul appeals to his example. He, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is an amazing command here, amazing concluding command here. And, and certainly when he says imitate me, he certainly can't put all of, of his way of life into a letter. So he decides to send Timothy to expound to them how exactly the truth of the gospel actually works itself out in Paul's daily life. I'm sending Timothy to you to share with you in detail what it looks like in my way of life to follow Christ. In other words, it's not enough to just have right doctrine, to, to write the book of Romans, or to be able to perfectly explain the gospel of grace and forgiveness and transformation, and yet not know how to live in grace, or how to apply grace to others, or how to believe that you're forgiven. Look, the reality and centrality of the gospel should be evident and functioning in all of our lives. This is really the point of all of Paul's letters is to take what's true about our identity in Christ and then to work out those truths into our, our, our behaviors, our lives. Certainly you have Romans 1 through 11 that, that expounds in the most glorious way the gospel of Jesus Christ for Jews and for Gentiles. And you get to chapter 12 and what happens? Therefore, I urge you, because of the mercy of God, to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And for the rest of the book, we get the implications for our daily lives. Look, the gospel is meant to transform our lives, to change how we think and how we live, how we behave, all because of what's true in the gospel and what Jesus gives to us in the gospel. So Paul points to his example as a gospel man. And he says, imitate me. Elsewhere he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I was thinking this week that it's, it, it's such a, that's an amazing thing that he would say. It, it reminded me of 
Like, as a pastor, there's no pastor and his wife who wants to do a parenting seminar. I'm just going to tell you that. <laughs> Especially if we have kids. Right? Now, actually, the pastor and wife who does want to do the parenting seminar probably shouldn't. It's actually the ones who don't want to do it, that don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, that probably should give the parenting seminar because there's a tremendous, like, fear and trembling nature, right? And, and there's this tension between, it's not that that's a hard thing to do, it's just that we're fighting for it ourselves, right? And so when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, it hits at that same place. I don't feel like I, I'm really a father in this church. I feel like an older brother, for sure, right? But <laughs> to get even near to this spot where you're saying, your brothers and sisters, follow me as I follow Christ. As a pastoral team where we can say with confidence to you, follow us as we follow Christ. I feel like lightning's going to fall, right? Like, <laughs> it's such a trepidatious thing. Except that I've lived my life here for, since I was 16 years old, personally. I've pastored here for 25 years. You've watched me grow up as much as I've watched the church grow up. You've seen my entire adult life. You've seen my entire married life, and, and Marie. You've seen our, our, our entire family life, our, our, the entire raising of our children. And I can say that, that all I've sought to do is to, to see the power of Christ at work in our lives, transforming us through every season of life. And I've seen that as a project that we're in together. But that's what we're doing. We are following Jesus. We are seeking for the maximum power of Christ in the maximum areas of our life for the maximum of his glory. That's what we're living our lives for. Not perfect. So many mistakes along the way. So many regrets along the way. And I know that this represents all of your pastors in this church. We are seeking to honor Christ with our lives, with a lot of fear and trembling, and yet a desire to be faithful to his word and to his gospel. And so therefore, as a pastoral team, we can say with lots of fear and trembling, follow us as we follow Christ. Sometimes a, a faithful leader will appeal to their example, appeal to their authority. Look, I'm going to tell you that, that probably none of us are going to be national conference speakers. Probably none of us are going to be best-selling authors. I put my money on Alex, if that's going to be a possibility, by the way. None of us have written a, a, an article that's uh, made it onto the Gospel Coalition. I don't even think an article I wrote would make it onto our refrigerator at home. You know what I mean? But what are you looking for? What are we looking for? Whether you go to this church or no matter where you go. And of course, anything that exists in us of God's grace is only because of Christ in us and not just because of us. Here's the last thing. I think we see that a, a faithful leader will be vindicated by God. He says, uh, to end this chapter, he says, some are arrogant 
as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Do you remember that dreaded sentence from your mom at times? You just wait till your dad gets home. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of in here a little bit. Don't you, don't you feel that? It's because Paul is indeed correcting them, specifically by appealing to the difference between words, empty speech, and the power of God. And by the way, the power of God, this isn't signs and wonders, the miraculous power which is connected to spiritual gifts. The power of God in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 is centered in the gospel. The word of the cross is the power of God. This transformation that comes to people's lives through the power of God in the gospel preached. The power of God that saves through the gospel and the power of God that sanctifies through the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. So in other words, he's asking, how have the famous and impressive orators who have tickled your ears actually ever transformed your life or your marriage? or your perspective, or when you've had to suffer, how to do so with endurance. What value is their speech in those places in your life? Has anything ever changed? What message have you ever heard that was better than the cross? Is your leader, the leader that you love and and have developed a faction around, is he full of himself? Or is he full of God's word? Does your leader feed off of you? Or does he feed you with God's word and the gospel? Look, this is what Paul is saying. He knows that in the end, God will vindicate faithful leaders because the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. kingdom of God does not consist in talk, in empty rhetoric, but it consists in power, the very power of God. Leaders who stay near to the gospel, who preach the gospel, who see the gospel as the essential message that saves and changes us as we follow Jesus, that's what you should want. This is what we're looking for, according to Paul as he corrects this church. And Paul hopes that they will get all of this simply through the letter that they can pour over and and dissect and figure out what he's saying. And by the spirit of God, because it was the word of God then when they received it, be changed and adjusted in their worldly thinking and their anti-gospel living. See, Paul says, I hope, I hope you can get this through this letter. But those, those ones that are telling you, he's, he talks a big game. He's not going to come. He's like, I'm going to come. I'll come. And I'll bring a rod if necessary. Or I can come in a spirit of gentleness. And then the chapter ends. And his sustained argument from chapter 1, verse 10 till now is complete. 
And, and today, I wonder if you can see this, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, but what Paul's also saying to us. If it is to a steward, a, a servant to be found faithful, then look again. For the sake of Christ, faithful leaders will stand firm willing to correct and appeal and even suffer while insisting on the reality and centrality of the power of God found in the cross of Christ. I think that's a summary statement. In other words, this is, this is what we want. This is what we should want. I wonder if you can see how 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 is meant to work like a rudder for all churches. All churches of all ages. And it stands as an adjustment for a world of men and women who are addicted to evaluating. Who are, who are Olympic gold medalists at judging. It's what we do. And yet, and yet 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 stands as an invitation to reject dividing over the wrong things. The smaller things. And to passionately pursue unity over the right things. Do you see that? That's what's going on here. And then once we are reminded and we know what matters most to God. And when we make that, what matters most to God, what matters most to us, then unity will be the fruit. We will unite around the right things. Instead of dividing over worldly categories. And, and I think that I'm so grateful as I think about all of this for the grace of God. Because this is God's word to, to all of us to, and to all churches. It's, it stands in scripture as a wonderful marker of what what God intends, what Christ intends through this church that he promised to build. That includes us. It includes our local church. I'm so glad that God is the true father who addresses us and even corrects us like sons and daughters. And it goes all the way back to, to Corinth. We're not alone. How gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness is our Father to his people who so chronically get this wrong. I mean, again, think about it. How, how do you have Moses? He's on the mountain meeting with God in the fiery glory of God. And simultaneously, his people are building a golden calf, right? How do you get, how do you get God incarnate? The Son of God in Jesus Christ, who comes to a place where the people in unison are shouting, crucify him. And how do you get, a, again, a church that wants to fire the Apostle Paul? It's because this is what we do, guys. This is what we do. This is what we're like. But this is why Jesus came. He, he came to radically transform our lives and, and our perspective about everything. Isn't the kingdom of, of God an upside-down kingdom? Where the way up is down, where to, to live is to find your life, is to 
I've just messed up. My keys are up here for some reason. I don't know why I have them. Jesus comes to, to change us from the inside out, to conform us to his word and to be a people that Paul was hoping that this would have an effect in this church. And Christ wants this effect to happen in us. So let me, let me, let's think about how to, how to apply this. And I know that there's a macro sense that we can, we can take this principle and, and think about our lives in general. And I think a good, a good question to evaluate in your life, and you can do this this morning, is to consider, does, does what matters to God most, as found in his word, matter to me most? That's an overarching thing that's going on here. They, they had it all wrong. They were upside down in all of the categories. And the fix, in a sense, is to, is to recapture the heart of God, the heart of Christ. So does what matters to God most, as found in his word, matter to you the most? Certainly you can ask, well, what, what are you looking for in, in leaders, in the churches that you're a part of, whether that's here or elsewhere, we've always had two options going back to the first century. We either look for what matters most to God or we look for what matters most to the world. And when we look for what matters most to God, we then subordinate lesser things to a commitment to the gospel, to a commitment to the unity that Christ died for. We let lesser things be lesser things. Or will we let other factors supersede that? That's certainly a way to apply this and think about that. And I'm grateful, by the way, that notwithstanding any correction that God wants to administer through these chapters, I see in our church a desire to get this right. I so respect you for your desire to get this right, to make what matters most to Christ matter most to us. And when you think about it, this expands beyond just leaders. It, it, it connects to everything. Does what matter most to God matter most to you in your life? It touches everything. It touches your time. It touches your money. It touches single guys. What are you looking for in a girl? Single ladies? What are you looking for in a guy? And I know that's a complicated question, but somewhere in there, there are things that matter most to God. This touches your involvement in a local church. It, it affects me even as, as I, I worship here, you know, where you just want everything to, to, to be perfect and to go perfectly. And yet when it doesn't, for whatever reason, there's a thousand different ways. Like what's most important to God when we gather together? What's most important to God when we evaluate what happened here this morning? Was Christ revealed and was his spirit present among us to do all that God wanted to do? Yes, then good day, right? Then good day. Look, this touches every area of our lives. You can 
think about the way of the cross that we're called to and all of the implications that has for us. I guess the last thing is, on a more personal level, if you find yourself suffering in ways that Paul describes. Certainly suffering is a a general category in our lives. And if you are suffering in the way that Jesus has called us to, I can't tell you how great that is because that is the power of Christ working in you. If you are currently being reviled and yet in your heart is a a desire to, certainly we're human and we're hurt and we're we're defensive and we're proud and we want to get ourselves off of every hook that we find ourselves on. But if you're being reviled and yet there's something in your heart that wants to pray for that person that's reviling you. If you're being persecuted or rejected, and, and that hurts, and you're trying to work through the pain of that, and it's real, we're human. And yet if there's something in your heart that, that seeks the glory of Christ through what's happening, and a desire to, to pray for that person, that God would fix and restore and heal and bless, if you're in that spot, look, Jesus would say, this is what you're looking for. That's the power of Christ in you. And I pray that he continues to conform us all to what he wants in us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's, it's, it is amazing how your word is sharp as a two-edged sword. It's, it's able to cut and, and reveal, but so carefully and so precisely. Lord, I pray that to the degree that there's, there's any conviction in that, how can we not be convicted Lord, since our our natural drift is not toward these things, but typically away, Lord, I pray that you would give us all the strength through your power at work in us, Lord, to to make what's a priority to you a priority to us. Lord, not just in in leaders and in church, but in every area of our lives. Lord Jesus, we want to live lives where you are at the center of it all. And this only happens through your power. Apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing. So will you be with us? Will you lead us from this place? Will you give us time to to think and and ponder and consider? This book is going to move into different territory and, and, and into different ground. Lord, help us to steward well what you've taught us over these last few chapters. Help us to respond but not in our own strength, but only through you. And all for your glory, Jesus, through this church. I thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you. We, we all do. This, this place that you brought us by your providence to love you and serve you and gather and worship and love one another and encourage each other to press on. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name.